on a weekend where maybe, maybe you experience what I experience because you do check social media occasionally. And for some of us, we witness some perfectly placed dinners over Thanksgiving that had the exact right space between each plate on a table that was set with the perfect turkey and it had the perfect sides and everything went exactly right in that one photo that we witnessed and that we all liked. And the the comment under the photo was amazing as well and we thought you crafted that in between the moments where you made all of this perfect meal for everyone and then all of the conversation at that table was probably perfect too at least that's the way I interpreted the photo that I read was I'll bet their friendships are amazing I'll bet their family has it all right I'll bet that meal tasted perfect and then I went to a couple of hours where we were watching our dog to make sure that he didn't rob every, or she didn't rob everyone's plate of the turkey, or lick someone's stuffing as our three-year-old ran through the house, at one point only in his diaper. It's always a good time. And I realized that the picture perfect of anything, that hallmark version of Thanksgiving and now into Christmas, It's not really what we want. It is what we want to watch for a few minutes to maybe disengage from the overwhelming aspects of our life or the can I stop thinking for a minute and make this super easy for me to have this perfect picture of what bliss would look like. Maybe it's a good getaway place, but it's actually not what we want because what we want deep inside, what we want is a story worth telling. And channels like Hallmark fight every year to retell the same story in some unique way, right? We've got to change the flannel up on that guy this year. Because if we don't, no one will watch this one. And so we change the narrative just a little bit. What's brilliant about Ryan and in the book that she wrote is that she played to the humor and the beauty of that narrative to make something different. And to add adventure and choice into it. And it was with the release of that book that we actually presented this series. And we're like, we have an author in our midst. And she's written the book about Christmas. What's it look like to just join that adventure? And to take a new look at a story that has been told year after year in these same weeks over and over. And for some of us, it might have gotten a little stale. For others of us, the impossibility of the narrative of waiting on God with us to enter the world has become so hopeful that there is a gap between our hopelessness and we don't even want to think about it. Our hopelessness doesn't match that hope and we need a new adventure. But we need an adventure where we get to choose. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to ask you to join into the world where fictitious candy cane workers join in with what we believe to be authentic carpenters or stonemasons to join this story that is the ushering in of Emmanuel or God with us into this world. 
And we're going to start with Mary and Joseph this morning. If you have a Bible in front of you or you want to look it up on an app, I affirm the use of apps. I know we have some people who teach up here that just shame people who use those. Um, Steve's not even here to hear that. But I encourage you if you have an app. We're going to be in two different stories briefly. Luke chapter 1, around verse 26. And then back in Matthew chapter 1 at the end, we're going to start around verse 18. Because we have two adventures that need to come together that we're going to compare a little bit this morning. But I want to set that up first with my own journey. This week was uh, interesting as it ended with Thanksgiving, which was fun and filled with two Thanksgivings and a Friendsgiving for us, which is a great three days. Prior to that, though, I would spend the, the front end of the week in Monterey, Mexico, where for the last eight years, our organization has led a youth retreat for orphaned teenagers in the city of Monterey. So this year, we had 90 students who were participating in this retreat. It's the only retreat that I lead in the year where I actually want the numbers to go down. Most retreats that you lead in the name of Jesus in different places, like especially if you do youth work, you want the numbers to go up every year of like, yeah, there's 300 kids from Mason or from Cincinnati who went to a 121 retreat, which is the name of the retreat, because we want people to come to know Jesus. But when you have a retreat that is centered on, this is a retreat for children from children's homes, which means that they have been separated from their families and are living in an institution, every year I'm like, can the numbers go down? Like our hope is fewer kids are coming every year because there are fewer kids living in institutionalized care in the city of Monterey. This year there were 90. Out of those 90, there were four who had been For the last eight years. They started as 14 or 15 year olds. In the first year that we led this retreat. And now in its eighth year. They are coming back and leading as adults. Pouring back into children. Who are now sleeping in the same dorm bed. That they slept in as teenagers. And they're pouring back into stories of saying. Hey you're from this children's home. I'm from that children's home. What dorm do you stay in? Oh you're in dorm three. I was in dorm three. What bed are you living in? Oh this is, that's your bed. I actually used to sleep there. And what I see as the amazing redemption of that story. Is that the four who returned. Are all employed. They're all living in their own apartments. And they're all successful in their journey out of poverty. And none of them have recreated a cycle. None of their children are back in institutions. Actually, none of the four of them have even chosen to have children yet. And they're coming back in and saying, I used to live in the bed that that you sleep in. And the students are going, no way. You? Like, you have a job. You have a career. You own a car. You have your own iPhone. Huh, we can make it. It's a really interesting story. At the end of every retreat, we do a debrief with those leaders that have been around for a few years and that used to live in the children's homes and that are now leaders. And every year, the debrief starts the same with every leader. And this year, we had 20 leaders in the room. 20 of these students aging 16 to 24 years old. All of their narratives in their debrief starts with this. I didn't want to come. I didn't want to be here. Coming into the weekend when they told me that I was able to be a leader, I didn't want to come. 
And every year that I heard that, I was overwhelmed by it because I thought, we must not be putting on a very good retreat. But when I started to listen to the narrative of each one of their stories, I found that in between retreats, so much had happened. The statement was really, I didn't feel qualified to be here. So much has happened since the last retreat that I thought all of my poor decisions would be exposed as a leader. I didn't want to have to justify some of the bad decisions that I had made. I didn't want to tell everyone about how hard this year has been. I didn't want to come to this retreat because I believe that when I entered into the retreat, God would be there to judge me and tell me that I had been a phony and a fake leader and I was going to be in front of these younger kids and these kids were going to ask me about my life and I was going to have to lie to them and tell them that it was all unicorns and rainbows when it's been the hardest year of my life. And so I didn't want to be here. Sometimes we feel that way about Christmas. It's the thing that happens every year that we're all invited to come back to. And yet we're not sure that we want to be here. But I wonder if our stories would change if we saw that Christmas was not about shame. It wasn't about bringing our guilt before Jesus so that he could be birthed into this world and start a new story for us. But what if Christmas started with the decision of whether or not we consent to his story and we surrender to his will? What if that's the decision that we're being posed with this morning? Do you consent or do you surrender Or do you choose not to consent and say, I want my story back. I don't want to consent to your plan or your journey. I don't want to surrender to your will. I want to do it my own way. We have those options. And I actually believe that Mary and Joseph had those options. I want to dive into their narratives just a little bit as we discuss consent and surrender. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. I'm just going to read the narrative Because of the way it flows. In the sixth month, God sent an angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. Her name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered, What kind of greeting is this? But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked, since I have never been with anyone? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One will be born, to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your cousin, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. We'll pause there in Mary's story. Interesting. So many times growing up, that story was posed to me as, how blessed is Mary? And so many times I've wondered, was she? A teenager, more than likely, in the season of being betrothed or engaged 
to a man based on the cultural marriage practices at the time. Younger in her teenage years. Not wooed by the grand candy cane harvester of the community who had abs of steel. She would have instead been, when she had become old enough to get married, brought to her father to have a conversation where he said, I believe you are old enough. I will now see who's available in the village and I will make offers to their fathers to see if anyone of them wants you. That's romantic, right? No dropping into DMs here. Instead, the response is, Dad, I trust you with my future and my identity and my value. And I trust that there's someone who will find value in me. And so two fathers had come together, Mary's father and Joseph's father, and they had made a deal, probably included some livestock, to make a trade. And Joseph would have then been communicated by his father, hey, you're going to pursue this girl. Her name is Mary. This is the house she is from. This is her descendants. It keeps you in the line of David. We're all good. There's the possibility of us staying really, really connected to the greatest king that we ever had and the line that we need to stay connected to because relationship and history and heritage is power in this community. Son, you're good. Daughter, you're good. And so Mary is waiting on the finality of this relationship to be consummated with this man that was chosen for her, for her to enter in. No consent, no voice, just tradition and structure. And so an angel appears, and Mary's response to the angel appearing, right, is... This is a very odd greeting. It's a very interesting way that Luke framed it of, she was perplexed by the way that he greeted her. I'm like, I would be perplexed that there's an angel in the room. Like, there is something that doesn't seem human looking at me and going, hey, God thinks you're cool. Really? Because you don't make sense right now. And her thought was, wait a minute, I don't understand what you're saying. No one... No one has given me favor. What have I done to find favor? I've just been a teenage girl whose journey has been defined by all of the adults in the room and been determined for me. What have I done to bring about favor? What do you mean by this? And that's why the angel then goes into, let me tell you what I mean by favor. You have been chosen to usher in the salvation of the world By carrying him in your womb. Again, practical Mary. Your greeting is weird. And how's this going to work? Because I've not been with a man. What are you saying you're going to do to me? That's a very vulnerable question that Mary asks in this passage. There are belief systems around other gods and other religions that would have narratives around her that would express 
the violation that was about to happen by a God on Mary. And she's asking a question. Is it going to be like what they do? Is it going to be like that? She's in the line of David. In her narrative and in the narrative of her future husband are women like Rahab and the wife of Uriah intentionally left in this lineage to remind us before Mary, women were sold for sex and other men's wives were taken by kings and kingdoms were broken over it. The history coming up to Mary, even in the lineage of Jesus, is intentional to say these women didn't get consent. These women were part of a narrative that wasn't the beautiful bride. Esther is in there too, right? Trafficked into a kingdom to overcome a story, to speak on behalf of God who is creator. We have women listed in the story and the lineage of Jesus with an intentionally different narrative as the one that Mary is being given here. But she raises her hand. How's this going to happen? Because no one has ever known me. I'm pure from that side. I have not been taken advantage of. Nothing has happened to me in that realm How's this going to work? And the angel's response is, wait, wait, wait. You found favor. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And what Gabriel is saying, I hear your question, little girl. Just know, this creator is going to break the rule of natural law. To bring you into the beauty of his story. He's not going to take advantage of your body. This is the presence of the Holy Spirit. This is a way that's going to honor you and make sense over time that it could only be God. So don't worry, but great question. Your journey will be different. And I want you to know how different it will be because I want you to look at your cousin. She's been known by her husband. For many years, they've been together. Beyond the natural ability to have children is your cousin, and yet she has a baby too. Just know, I have you in this way that I am going to come and save what has been lost not wound you in this journey. Now to Matthew, if you'll flip there with me for a second. Chapter 1. Because meanwhile, Matthew illustrates it this way. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. 
But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Joseph's narrative is slightly different, right? He doesn't receive a word from Gabriel before. When we read into this, we would assume that it was Mary or Mary's family that had to go to Joseph and say, um, okay. What happened was, there was an angel and a spirit, and now I'm pregnant. You're not the father. What do you want to do? This didn't come angel Joseph, then he run down the snow-driven perfectly lit from great uplighting path as a great song played to each other in the middle of the street with tears down their eyes. He spoke to you too. We're going to carry Jesus. There wasn't that moment for Joseph and Mary where the angel spoke to both of them and they ran into the street and then all of the village awoken and there were gingerbread cookies and a nice singing at the Christmas tree as it was lit together where all of their stepchildren came around them with hands held and they sang. It didn't happen that way. There was tension. There was a disturbance to the point where it said that Joseph was leaning on his righteousness to the extent of the point of saying, what can I do to make this as simple as possible for both of us, I think the only option is for us to go through with this and then divorce this relationship quietly so that I can save face for her and for me in this journey because I only see that is the only option. If that is the only option, we have to infer a little bit of the story that's been told to him, right? Like, is he making a decision on whether or not he believes that she is pregnant by the Holy Spirit? And his other choice is to believe that she is pregnant by something else that is getting buried? And what horrific paths did he go down? I know the ones my mind would go down. What happened to my bride? Who did it? Was it consensual? Was she victimized? Where are we in this narrative? It says that his righteousness was coming out to say, it doesn't matter what happened, something happened, and I just need to make this as easy as possible on both of us. And so I'll try to in this relationship quietly. He was trying to lead well even in that. And then he's met in a dream. And he's encouraged to surrender. Surrender control. 
control of your narrative, control of your character, control of public opinion, control of what's happened to this girl. Surrender that control. Surrender the control of the perfect story because this is the Spirit of God and this is the Messiah coming into this world. Will you surrender the narrative that you wanted to happen for the one that is happening so that you can see what God is doing in your life in spite of the chaos that's around you. Now back to Mary. Verse 38, her response. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. And back to Joseph in verse 24. And Joseph woke up. He did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. And he took Mary home as his wife. And he didn't know her until she gave birth to a son. He left no doubt. And he gave him the name Jesus. Mary chose. Mary chose. And God gave her the choice. Mary said, I am with the Lord. I am his servant. Oh, yeah. That's, that's why you found favor in me, right? It's because I was with you before all of this. This is a young girl who is growing up believing that she is with God, with this Yahweh that she has been told about and followed all of her days. And when this tough situation is presented to her that changes the trajectory of her life and that puts things into a sequence that we often put into the movies as the things that we need to redeem, engage pregnant marriage, right? Those are the, oh, we've got conflict moments that we put into movies. Oh, this happened backward. Oh, there's tension here. Mary's being asked, embrace engaged pregnant marriage. We're asking you to embrace that. But the Spirit is with her. And her questions have been answered. And she wasn't shamed for asking the question. And the last word, the angel doesn't leave until she gives consent. She says, I am with the Lord. Let this happen to me. I welcome his presence in. I'm in. We get to choose in the narrative of God. We get to consent that we will go with God into our difficult circumstances. He invites us to choose. That's huge. And that he gave the woman in the story consent and he pushed the man to surrender. That's big too. Because Joseph's response was not a word back to the angel. He woke up and married his bride. He surrendered to the narrative by doing what he was invited to do. He surrendered the narrative to God by acting. And this is the adventure that we get to choose this morning. No matter how hard our family experiences, no matter how hard our journeys have been in the past,
We get to choose to take Emmanuel into our circumstances because God is with us and to surrender to doing good work in spite of our circumstances because both options are still on the table. And as we sat around that circle in Monterey, I saw both happen in the room. We tried to give honor to the four students who'd been there for eight years. Earlier in the morning at the last main session, the, the MC of the event had actually stood up and said, we want these four to stand up. Kevin, Shirley, Shannon, Giovanni, will you stand up? Because you have been to every retreat and we want to give you honor for being with us for eight years and for continuing to choose to come. And so they came up and their eyes were on the ground. Not a sense of, yay, we get a prize. Because they got a prize for being there eight years. And when they went to sit down, the room was looking at them. And they weren't looking at anyone. And I was like, where, where did the shame just enter into that narrative? Something happened. Because I had got the opportunity to notice it, I was then speaking next. I got to throw a few words in to try. I was trying to find it. I was trying to find what was wrong and what was broken. And so my words were more like, I want you, the four of you, to know that you were up here not because we're like, yay for you for being here for eight years. But yay for you for not quitting and not giving up because we know how hard your stories have been. And yet you still find a reason to show up over a weekend and sleep in dorms with 13 and 14 year old kids and take them to the bathroom in the middle of the night and listen to them while they're telling stories and play dodgeballs in empty swimming pools. You choose that eight years later because something happened and you're choosing that now. It was interesting, the word choice changed, like all four of them, it, boom, changed. In the debrief later, I found out why. And I'd never thought about this before, but one of the boys, his name is Kevin, and he said, I really didn't like it the first time that they brought us up this, this morning because the first four years, I didn't choose to come. The children's home made us come to this retreat. They wanted a weekend off. So they sent the teenagers to the mountains for the retreat. Every parent in the room is just like, oh, I might have been guilty of that for a couple of retreats. Like, oh, there's a great youth retreat this weekend. Mommy and daddy need a break. Caregivers and children's homes were the same way. And so there was a retreat. And they didn't say, do you want to go? They packed everyone's stuff and put them on a bus and said, you're going. And so they came to the retreat in the mountains where these conversations around Jesus and these games, these dorms just happened for the first four years of their life in this retreat environment. And it had not clicked with me that that's the way this retreat was being presented at the children's homes. And it was this aha moment of, oh, wait, you didn't choose. This was a, you have no voice, you have to come. And then Kevin continued his story and he said, it wasn't until the third year in that Chris and my small group leader, Mario, came to me during this last worship time, and they walked over to me and said, Kevin, you don't know, but you're a leader. 
this whole weekend, other guys have been following you around and watching what you do and doing it in response. And then Mario, he's a real emotional guy, kid from a children's home, who then told his testimony that weekend. He was weeping and saying, Kevin, I'm not going to leave very much longer. You are going to be invited to take my place. Kevin's response in that debrief was, it was in that moment that someone had told me they saw something in me that I was afraid that might not ever be awoken in leadership. And he said, when Mario said, you're a leader, all of a sudden I was like, are you sure? And he said, I waited the whole next year to see if I was going to be chosen and asked to lead this retreat. And then I was chosen to lead the retreat, and I was like, oh, no, I should never lead this retreat. No one should ever be entrusted with me. I can't take care of myself. You definitely shouldn't trust me with little kids. He said, but I led, and my whole thought that weekend was lead like Mario, just lead like Mario, just lead like Mario, just lead like Mario. And so he led like Mario. He was like, that was the first time I was invited to do something. And now Kevin is 24, he has a job, lives in his own apartment, and his youngest brother confessed Jesus at this retreat that he's leading in his last year. And Alexis is in tears as Kevin shares this story. And then another boy reaches his hand up and his name is Axel. And Axel says, Kevin, I didn't know that was part of your story because I wanted to tell you this. Two years ago, I was in your small group at this retreat. And this year, when I was asked to lead as a leader for the first time, I was scared and I thought, just lead like Kevin. Just lead like Kevin. Because they used to make me come to this thing too. And I remember when all of the kids in my group got off of the bus and we had to be there, your face made me want to be there. And so I thought, these boys are going to get off this bus at this retreat and not want to be here. The whole time as the leader of the retreat, I'm going, no one wants to come to my retreats. Uh, (laughs) That's no good. Except that there's this journey that's happening Where each generation, they're one step away from have to and one step closer to want to. And that's our choice today. Mary was so much farther away in the have to to want to than we are. But we get to choose want to today just like she got to choose want to so many generations before. Because people just keep saying yes. So we get to as well. So many generations away from Joseph, people are still surrendering in spite of circumstances, which invites us to surrender too, because we don't know who's in the group around us, and we don't know who's going to be at that Christmas dinner. We don't know who's going to be at work with us that day. And they're just wondering if there's anyone around them who's shown them what consent looks like, and who's shown them what surrender looks like. We want to close this morning with communion. Because that's the intertwining of surrender and consent. It's that invitation where Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. This is me surrendering. This is my blood poured out. This is my choice to come into this world completely dependent in the womb of a woman and to exit this world completely independent and of my own choice giving up everything so that you could join me in this. He gave us surrender, and he agreed to it so that we could have the freedom to make decisions and have choice today. 
And so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to hand you the communion emblems. And we're going to share in that moment. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for teaching us through Joseph and Mary on this earth. And for um, teaching us through your own narrative of how humbly you came into this earth. And your small beginnings and how they sparked such a fire of redemption. And I pray that they would do that within me and within us. It's in your name. Amen.